The following program is sponsored by Team Reba of Remax Metro East Side and Eric Osnes of Home Street Bank Home Mortgage. Welcome to Open House with Team Reba. The opinions expressed on the following program are not necessarily those of the staff, management, or advertisers of this station. Welcome to Open House with Team Reba. I am Reba Hass. And I'm Eric Osnes. Each week, we will be bringing you a roundup of real estate and mortgage news, along with information about the local Puget Sound region, highlighting some of the best and brightest entertainment options, family events, neighborhood highlights, and local business interviews, so you can feel right at home in the Pacific Northwest. And we may not always exactly follow a script. We might be a bit irreverent. Hopefully, we won't say anything that offends anyone. If so, we'll have a live call in, and you can call in and tell us all about it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they'll be more than happy to tell us all about it. But uh, so I had several. This is our inaugural show, folks, for anyone who's listening Welcome. right now. And we want to thank you for your time and listening to what we have to say for this next hour coming up. Uh, but honestly, I had quite a few colleagues and friends, uh, Eric, who asked me a lot about why are you doing a radio show? Uh, what makes you think that you should do one? And uh, I thought that would be a great way to start our show by uh, kind of putting out a little bit of information about who we are, where we came from. And I figured we could start with you because I've known you a long time, but listeners have no idea who you are. So why don't we, uh, why don't we get started with that? Tell All me right. about, um, about your experience in the mortgage lending world. Yeah, pressure's on now. Well, let's just say I started my lending career back when Ronald Reagan was president. And I'm oh, not going to give you an exact year, but <laughs> it's been a long time. If I were a 30-year amortized loan, if my career were, it would have already been paid off by now. So, <laughs> Except for you refinanced. That. That's so right. So you're still going. That's right. <laughs> still paying for it. I'm actually a Seattle native, uh, born and raised here. And I started uh, my career with a small local bank called Seafirst Bank, going way back when. I don't know if everyone knows, Seafirst um, was uh, one of the largest regional banks in the area. Uh, in the uh, late 80s, they failed. Um, they they got into energy loans in Oklahoma, and oh, so uh, not just a uh, savings and loan debacle of everything collapsing at the time, but it was even outside of. This was one that there's some books written on it. People writing loans on the backs of cocktail napkins and things oh, like that. Uh, anyway, I spent about ten years with the bank. I was a branch manager for them and got into mortgage lending. And then in around 1989, uh, my wife got a job uh, in England, and we transferred to England, and I spent a few years over there uh, working for a local bank over there, making mortgages. Mortgages. And, uh, and so... Um, That's a very different kind of marketplace over in the UK oh, as well, isn't it? Very much so, but absolutely fantastic uh, time over there. And uh, I learned a lot, learned all about how to speak that language, which is uh, significantly different than our version of English. And... Uh, the bank Someday was, we might cover that, yeah, just yeah, for we fun. Might, um, we'll, we'll do a comparison of the U.S. to purchasing in other areas of the world. Oh, I, I, I think that could be quite interesting. I, I learned some English uh, language that could not be uh, spoken on the radio, let's just put it that way. So <laughs> um, over there, the, the bank I was with um, got into a little bit of, of uh, trouble also. The economy wasn't super strong at that time, and, and so I, um, I fled back uh, to the U.S., Landed with a, a small um, savings and loan bank uh, out of Everett, Washington, Cascade Bank. And, uh, well, Cascade didn't quite uh, stick to mortgage lending after the, the savings and loan scandals, and so I went to a safer place 
Washington Mutual. Ooh. I don't know if anybody's keeping notes as I'm talking <laughs> about this, but there's um, you might see a, a pattern developing. Uh, everyone locally probably knows about Washington Mutual. And, and that's where I met you. Absolutely, You were yes. working at WAMU. About 12 uh, years ago. 12 years ago when that's we met, right. yes. That's right. Well, Washington Mutual, I loved that bank. I got I to gotta be honest. It was a great bank to work with. They were good to their people. They were good to their customers. Unfortunately, they got a little too big for their, for their britches and expanded too fast. And, and uh, we kind of saw the, the, the downfall coming. Uh, so I accepted a position um, with the largest lender in the country, J.D. Power's number one ranked countrywide home loans. Um, Don't so boo and hiss, everybody. We, we know we there go. was a lot of people not happy with them down Good. the road. Yeah, locally they were, they were probably okay. But yeah. um, uh, countrywide, we all know, didn't make it through the, the latest uh, savings, uh, you know, mm-hmm. lending scandal and meltdown. And, uh, and, you know, some would argue maybe, maybe contributed a bit to it. So, yeah. um, you know, so when, when um, they were actually acquired by Bank of America, and uh, off I went to Bank of America, um, which um, originally had acquired Seafirst Bank where I had started. I ended up like about 20-odd years later in the same parking lot that I started my career <laughs> in. So uh, anyway. Deja uh, vu all over again, that's right? That's right. Long story short, I've sort of longed to work for, for a local bank, and, uh, and I, I just like that local aspect. I like that fact, and, I, and, and so I'm uh, happy, to, happy to be at Home Street Bank. Yeah, well, yeah. you also had a little st- – did you mention Wells Fargo in between I did not there? mention a stagecoach that was uh, kind of okay. tucked in there in, in between. Oh, yeah. And, it, was, uh, it was a little bit briefer stay spent, for you. Spent a few, uh, yep, few years managing um, uh, offices for Wells Fargo Home Mortgage as well. And uh, so the, the good news is all, all of this has given me a, a great, great deal of experience. I've been through cycles. We've seen the ups. We've seen the downs. We've, you know, we've, I dare to say I've seen it all. Yeah. And uh, so hopefully Well, and you also have, uh, if I recall correctly, you have an economics degree also, do you not? Yeah, I'm a, a grad of Seattle University. So, yeah, I have a degree in finance and economics. Shout out to Seattle U. Yay. Great, great school. <laughs> So, um, yeah, it's been a it's been a good run, and I try and, and try and use that that background and that experience to help my clients uh, explain things, help them understand what's going on, and hopefully give advice that's going to help them be, you know, I don't want to say get into a home, I want them to be successful. We want people oh, to, to be in this for long term and be happy, mm-hmm. you know, absolutely. happy with their home and. Happy well, those with are the own. kinds of conversations we have on the the real estate side as well. But for me, it was very important to make sure that we let folks who are listening know. Not just the breadth of experience you have with different lenders, which gives you, a, I think, a unique ex- perspective, uh, because not all lenders who are out there have had that broad of an experience. Or they haven't had the amount of time of experience and seeing the ups and downs in your industry, uh, or even the comparison of how interest rates have shifted over time. But I actually find personally that your economics degree uh, in finance also just elevates you above a lot of other folks because many folks in the industry on your side don't necessarily come into lending with that kind of background. That's probably true. It's it's very true. Um, I mean, I would say from the number of years that I've owned homes, even before going into real estate in 2003, if you ask the actual background and experience of most of the folks in it, they don't have that kind of, uh, you know, education that's, that's geared towards what you actually really do. And I, part of it for me was when I got in the industry, a friend of mine, uh, had joined, uh, joined the lending side of things and wanted me to send him business. 
but I could understand and explain mortgages better than he could. And he admitted to me that when he went into lending, he, we both had known each other in the electronics field. We, I worked in technology before I got into real estate right. and he came from a completely different background, knew nothing about the lending world and was solely brought into his job because of his sales experience. So it was really a sales job. And I've seen many other folks kind of graduate into the business or get, choose to get into the business with completely, you know, varied backgrounds. And, you know, I can't say that that's a horrible thing to not have a finance background uh, because folks who get into the real estate side of things come from all kinds of backgrounds as well. You know the best part about it? What? I use uh, the calculator I used back in business school. It's And <laughs> some of you out there, it's the HP-12C. Yep. Nobody in my office knows how to use it. I'm sure they it don't. It works backwards. Yeah. And so everybody <laughs> looks at it and they're like, ah, I'll just go I'm find sure another one. I'm sure they get one. scared of it and they run away. <laughs> That's right. So Reba, tell us about yourself. So you've been in the industry now about twelve, little over 12 years. Yeah. Yeah. I started in mid-2003. And uh, there may be some folks listening that might have heard me on Susan Michael's show uh, back at the end of July, uh, but not to repeat myself too much, but I, uh, I had 13 years in the tech world. I used to work in the hardware component side of things, and then I also worked in software licensing for five years. And because of a company I worked at, um, speaking of things where there were scandals, uh, about the time of WorldCom and Enron, unfortunately, I worked for a tech firm where they had a CEO kind of similar uh, who made the demise of the company uh, mm. for, for taking a lot of the cash they had on hand. And so I went through a layoff. We were a global company, went through a layoff. And when um, trying to decide if I wanted to stay in tech, because I got a really bitter taste in my mouth after that situation and I was pretty upset because I uh, have a strong ethical base and I thought well who can I work for like what are my skill sets what do I do because I didn't build or make any of the products that I sold but I thought well I've got years and years of contract experience sure lots of times of working with attorneys not intimidated by that used to working with six and seven figure deals uh, day in and day out uh, what other kind of industry does the same thing sure and I thought well, real estate. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'd bought and sold several homes at that point. Had had a great real estate agent of my own, and I contacted him, and he agreed to become my mentor. And so I went through the license, and I did a lot of research before I went into it and built a business plan and a marketing plan and all that. Well, that's what I was going to point out. I, I think you're one of the few realtors I've ever worked with that actually interviewed me and and to decide if you wanted to work with me. You also showed me your business plan. Mm -hmm. You you had a, a, a defined plan, a marketing plan. You knew you knew exactly what you were going to do, and so uh, that's I can tell you with with hundreds of realtors I've I've worked with over the years, that's a very very rare thing. So well, thank yeah, you. congratulations to you. Yeah. <laughs> so how's tell me tell me a little bit more. Uh, so uh, I got into the industry and uh, I did a little more homework. Um, some folks know that my mom happens to work in real estate also. So I did, uh, as part of my due diligence, contacted her and found out a lot. So in my initial uh, marketing plan, I really decided I wanted to work with both homeowners and investors uh, going after multifamily housing. And because uh, I'm also in, an investor myself, I have a duplex and a fourplex. Uh, and I also have another apartment uh, that my husband and I manage here locally. And uh, I've done some other investments in 
in the meantime. And so I thought, well, you know, I've got some experience in all of this, so I can speak the language. I understand the evaluations. So let's speak to the people who speak my language. You know, I'll work with those folks. And uh, in my first year, I was very successful uh, and surprised a lot of folks coming out the gate because it's uh, most most people don't realize that there's a 90% attrition rate in our industry in the first year and about an 80% attrition rate the second year. So to actually survive and thrive in the business is quite difficult. Especially getting through those those first few years, it's, it's um, one of the most difficult things you can do. Mm-hmm. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation. This is uh, Open House with Team Reba, Reba Hass and Eric Osnes here. Join us. Call us, call us up, 866-712-1300 if you have a question. You're listening to Open House with Team Reba. We'll return in a moment. And now more of Open House with Team Reba. Welcome back to Open House with Team Reba. This is Eric Osnes. I'm Reba Hass. And join us every Tuesday at 3 o'clock for an hour of informative information on real estate and finance and just about anything else that we feel like talking about. And sometimes a bit of ridiculousness. Absolutely. So, Reba, you were mentioning that you were working with investors. You, can you tell us a little bit about that? I, I was. Um, so when I got into the industry, we chose to uh, target both residential sales and uh, multifamily and maybe like commercial property. And we ended up, uh, the first few years, I had anywhere from 40 to 60% of my client base uh, buying investment properties, primarily uh, small multifamily up to uh, what would be considered commercial grade, uh, up to about 20 unit. That was uh, during the boom time, too. That was during the boom time. So 2003, you know, prices around here had been already appreciating uh, on general uh, 12 to 35% a year. And so we were already midway through that big run up. And uh, prices began to get so out of whack that, especially in the core Seattle area, there, it just didn't make any sense uh, because we never would sell a property that didn't cash flow from day one. So most of our properties, and this is what started me covering a three-county area, I always say I'm South Snohomish to North Pierce and Olive King in between. Because for my investor clients, we had to go to the perimeter of King County to find anything that could cash flow and make sense financially for them. You know, I call it a little different market. I call that the Apple Maggot Quarantine Area. Oh, you ever seen the signs as you're driving <laughs> Those down wonderful I-5? signs, yeah. yes. <laughs> oh my God, that's my that's coverage area. horrible. <laughs> what? What a way to envision that, especially when I see my dog eating all those rotten apples in our yard That's right, right now. He That's just brought right. one in last night. Well, uh, we can, th- but, we can uh, safely say we are maggot-free in this area, though, so oh, that's all good. Yep. Yum. Yum. Thank you for that, Eric. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so around 2006, uh, a lot of that client base started kind of drying up because we just couldn't recommend any property. Only about five to seven percent of the property around here really made any financial sense, and and we refused to sell just only on appreciation. That was just a, a clear thing for me, as I wasn't going to do that. And I was so happy because when August fourth, two thousand seven came, as you know, our market went into free fall here, and so my investor client base quickly started going to twenty five percent, fifteen percent, and we really started ramping up more of our residential work and uh, working with a lot more of our tech clients and what have you. And um, we we actually did quite well in my team through the recession. Um, and I knock on wood every time I say that because I know many of my colleagues 
did not fare so well, and a lot of folks fell out of the business in the industry. Um, it was but, hard work, hard work at that time. Yeah, very, very hard work. And so, you know, we did, we did fine. And about three years ago, of course, as you know, we really hit our bottom in 2010, 2011, we flattened in 2012, we started growing again. And now we're starting to see some of that investment come back. A lot of it's flipping. Uh, there's not so much folks going, jumping into multifamily, which is a little surprising to me because of all the new construction that's really focused on multifamily. Right, right. Um, and, you know, we haven't seen a lot of those properties changing hands even. So I think those folks who are making money are just holding on, especially because right now they're able to, to raise those rents, right? Well, and we're looking at what's happening with the with the values and, and people are yeah. thinking that we're not done. Right. You know, and all of our forecasts right now, you might talk about that in a little bit. Yeah, I, I will out. talk about that on the real estate part. But um, one of the things that is driving a lot of the residential side of things right now is interest rates remaining so low. Yes. And so we're, we're actually still uh, very excited about kind of where we're at in this part of the United States because we have the benefit of this really great appreciation growing again, along with continued low, low interest, interest rates. rates, which are kind of falsely in place. Right. And, uh, you know, there's, there's several years out, but um, I definitely want to make sure that we get a chance because you said the Fed met today, did they not? Yes, they did. And, okay. um, and we've got um, tons and tons of speculation going on in the financial markets. If mm -hmm. anybody's watching them today, they're all over the place. Um, and, uh, and so there's a lot of speculation about what the Fed's uh, going to do. Um, before I jump into that, too, call us up if you've got a question. Uh, you can reach us toll-free at 1-866-712-1300 or locally 206-441-5565 with your, with your questions. So first off, um, yeah, let's talk a little bit about, about the, the Fed. You know, what, what is it actually that who's meeting and what are they talking about and what's going on? What they're ta the, the group is called the FOMC. It's the Federal Open Market Committee. And the Federal Open Market Committee is part of the, of the, the Federal Reserve Bank. And uh, they meet every six weeks, well, eight mm -hmm. times a year. And we and have one of those here. We do have a, a Federal it's Reserve Bank branch. Um, yes, yes, we do. And the way the, um, the FOMC works, they have a board of governors. They have basically seven members on the board plus five Reserve Bank presidents. These are presidents of local banks, like there's one in Seattle. We're a branch of the San Francisco branch. Mm -hmm. There's ones in California, Oklahoma, right. New York, Boston. Yeah, I actually got a like tour that. of our facility here yeah. as part of my work with sure. the Renton Chamber, and it was fascinating. Very interesting. You get, a little, you get your little jar of shredded money to, yes. to walk away with? There yes. you go. Yep. So what happens is the, uh, the meetings take place every six weeks. They're secret. Uh, they don't, the, the, uh, the meetings are held secret. 30 days after the meeting, the minutes from the meeting are published. And so everybody knows a, a, a month later kind of what they talked about. Uh, what the Fed will be doing um, today and tomorrow, they're meeting, and they're trying to decide whether they should increase interest rates. Mm -hmm. And um, most likely tomorrow they'll make an announcement on that. And they're going to make two announcements. Number one is whether they increased interest rates or not. And number two, what their bias is towards future increases. And the okay. bias can be almost more important than the actual increase, although right. both are both are equally important right now. Um, what is it that they're actually talking about increasing? Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the Fed cannot increase your car loan. They can't increase your mortgage rate. The only thing that they can control is what's called the federal funds rate. 
And the Fed funds rate is um, basically the, the rate that banks pay to each other to borrow money from each other overnight. I call that the ultimate monopoly money. It's sort of like overdraft protection for a bank. Because every bank, every day, they never know how much money is coming in the door, how much money is going out the door. And, and they all maintain bank accounts with mm-hmm. the Federal Reserve Bank. So every now and then they'll go overdraft on that account. More money went out than came in, and they have to borrow money to cover that overdraft until they can settle it up the next day. That's what the federal funds rate is. If you did this at your own bank too often, they would tell you to please take your business elsewhere. Well, right. (laughs) And and the Fed funds rate, I mean, if you overdraft, you're going to pay, what, $35 $35 oh, or yeah. something you like that. Oh, yeah, you get majorly penalized. spread that out over, it's a pretty high interest rate. What do you think the federal funds rate is right now? What's your guess? Oh, gosh. I knew I should have looked this up before the show. Uh, one. Way off. Actually, right now, the federal funds rate is 0.14%. It. It's about what it, what it else, tends but... to average. <laughs> so we're not talking about a you know exorbitant interest rate here. Mm-hmm. Uh, but... Um, you know, and what, that had been held at zero for quite a while during we, the recession, right? The, the last time interest rates went up, uh, Fed funds rate went up, was in 2006. Yeah, we've had a long run of extremely stable rates. Mm-hmm. So so um, what, what, what they're talking about now, the reason that they're talking about increasing rates is typically the Fed will use that to control the economy. If the Fed lowers rates, it doesn't always necessarily stimulate the economy, but if they increase rates, it almost always essentially puts the brakes on it. Right. And if you think about it, if, if you take a little bit of money out of someone's pocket, mm-hmm. um, they have less money to spend, and that tends to slow your, your economic activity. Well, Or like when you try and ask, I don't know, the Microsoft employees to pay for the towels at their... Probably. <laughs> I remember that was a huge, huge thing when That's I was probably more Microsoft. serious than their the employees Fed funds rate. crazy when they had to pay for their towels. Abs- absolutely. <laughs> like, what? So, so, but, but what the Fed funds rate does, it, it has a, it's, it's an effect on, on several things. It affects prime rate. So, and prime rate affects right. if you have a, say, a home mm-hmm. equity line of credit or a, a business loans are, are probably right. even more important. Yeah. Um, it can affect the rate on, on car loans and, and uh, adjustable rate. Uh, mortgages, things mm-hmm. like that. So, so when when um, the Fed increases, it will tend to kind of trickle through. The other thing it can affect is the fees that banks charge, because if you think about it, a bank now all of a sudden rates are going up. That means they have to pay a little bit more of their depositors. That gives them a little bit less profit, and they're going to be trying to figure out how do I get some of that right. get some of that back. So, so there's a trickling effect throughout the economy when um, when the when the the Fed funds rate increases. So, um, so are you saying every time we see those ads where Chase says open a bank account and we'll give you a hundred bucks, that's what's in, like they'll say no, we're not offering those incentives any longer, right. or you, they you, just all rates start going up for fees. Well, you could see. I mean, I can't speak for for all the for, right. for the different banks, but yeah, you could see some some different things happen, or or the cost of an overdraft, or the mm-hmm. cost of a NSF check, or something like that could could go up. So. Right. So just some things to keep an eye on. Now, what they're talking about right now, and at least what most people are speculating, is that if we have an increase, it's probably going to be maybe a quarter of a percent, um, you know, initially. Okay. And and so it's not a, a an earth-shattering 
move. No, but um, for, for someone purchasing a home, it might make the difference on whether well, they're qualifying. It, it could. Now, uh, for instance, today, I, I've been following the, the mortgage markets today, and, and, and we, we had some increases in, in mortgage rates today a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, as, as they're trying to anticipate what's happening with the Fed and, and react to it. So even though the Fed hasn't made an announcement, the expectation of it's pretty much already been cooked into today's rates. Um, with that said, um, you know, can we can we live with rates around four percent? Yeah, absolutely. You know, oh, the rates gosh, are yes. phenomenally good right now. So this isn't going to be the end of the world if they do increase rates. Personally, I'm not convinced that they are going to increase them. You know, today or tomorrow. Uh, my guess is that they'll wait, and and there's there's a few reasons for that. Um, one of the reasons is is that um, increasing will definitely slow the economy down, and and there's some there's some 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 good and bad that that can also go along with that. And if you, um, it's kind of funny. I've been reading about some of the the economists and all their opinions on everything. And uh, what do they say? If if you lined all the economists up in the world, they'd never reach a conclusion. So I can I'm I'm looking at two lists here, and I got I got one that's in that's saying all the reasons why they should raise rates, you know, today mm-hmm. or tomorrow. And I have one that says why they shouldn't. And you know the the folks that are sort of against uh, against raising um, is is that um, uh, our 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 reason for raising rates is to control inflation. We want right. to keep the economy from from overheating. Um, it's wages that really have the the strongest effect on inflation. And right now, there and, is really and we in our marketplace are one of the top in the country with rising. We are, but rates are based on national statistics, though. Right. So so nationally, our there's not a lot of pressure on wages right now. It's not that not that bad. Um, and uh, and so uh, you know, as we um, as we kind of go along, we're going to actually pick this up in just a minute here. Um, and finished as we go into a break. Um, you're listening to Open House with Team Reba. This is Eric Asas and Reba Hass. Join us uh, at the end of the break. We'll continue our conversation. Open House with Team Reba. We'll be right back. Now back to Open House with Team Reba. Welcome back to Open House. I'm Reba Hass. I'm Eric Osnes. And we were just uh, having some conversations about the lending world and what's happening with interest rates and whether or not the Fed is going to be making any adjustments coming up, correct? That's absolutely right. Yeah, and you weren't quite finished with your statement, so I'd love to – I was waiting with bated breath to get this information. All right. Well, perfect. Well, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of talking about the pros and cons of, of the increase and whether it makes sense or not. And, uh, you know, with the, the other economic saying I, I was taught at, uh, at Seattle U is never trust a one-armed economist because they can't say on the other hand. So oh, there you go. Oh, and uh, all right. So our arguments, you know, against an increase, number one, uh, we don't think that wages are, are on fire right now. They're not going up dramatically. So we mm-hmm. don't have a problem with inflation like that uh, that we need to control. Yeah, in most areas of the country, no, they're not. Nope. Um, Demand for workers right now, uh, nationwide, is a little bit sluggish. Um, you know, there's there's a gap between the number of people looking for jobs and the number of job openings. You know, right now, um, there's a lot of people unemployed that are kind of out there warming the bench, and um, you know, and and so uh, we've got a lot of people looking for jobs, and that really takes mm-hmm. the pressure off of businesses. They don't have to 
pay higher wages to attract workers at this point. And that's that's a point of view that most people here in the Seattle and Puget Sound region aren't necessarily seeing because Correct. you know, I have a, a report sitting here in front of me about Puget Sound and it's all about the number of jobs that have come in recently and how we are struggling to find the right workers for, mm-hmm. for positions that are open. Right. And, but and, yeah, but on a national scale, we, we have to remember that we're not the center of the universe, despite what Fremont oh, wants to we say are, we about are special. itself. <laughs> we are an anomaly. We are blessed. Absolutely. To, to we're be extremely where lucky we're right now. That's right. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, so we're, we're not seeing a, a ton of inflationary pressure right now. You know, there's another argument as well, which is more of a global effect and increasing our rates when we have other countries, especially China right now, that's that's, um, you know, possibly going into a recession. You know, they're they're easing their their policies, lowering their rates Um, by us increasing our rates. It strengthens our dollar. Mm -hmm. And uh, anybody that's traveled recently, if you've been to Europe or Canada, uh, you'll notice just uh, how strong our, our dollar is, you know, yeah. with the exchange rate. Well, which is nice because for a very long time we were not doing so well. And I love personally, I love international travel, and I didn't do it for a long time. One because of my business not allowing me the time, but even just looking at the cost, it had really shifted quite a bit in some years. And I just thought no, it doesn't make sense. But now it'd be nice. It's it's true. It's nice for us when we're traveling, and it's nice for us when we're buying you know, mm-hmm. imported goods. Yeah. It's not so good if you're a local business trying to sell overseas right. because it makes our goods extremely expensive overseas. Right. And that's going to slow our businesses down. So so there's always this balancing act between keeping the dollar at a, at a certain level, you know, not too strong, not too weak, right. uh, to, to, to help our, our businesses that are doing uh, trade with other countries. Um, on the other side, of course, side, Washington State has a very large export economy. That's right, significant. So, uh, you know, so we're we're always trying to walk to walk that balancing act. Right now, the the consensus is the dollar's probably a little bit stronger than it should be. Mm-hmm. You know, at least uh, especially from the perspective of our of our businesses. Okay. So so we're so we're looking at that. So then the arguments for a, a, a an increase are number one probably well it's not going to hurt rates that much. You know, we're just talking about a quarter of a point. It's not going to be the end of the world. Some mm-hmm. think. Let's just do a one and done. We'll get that increase out there, and then everything's, you know, we'll, we'll settle back down. We can stop speculating, uh, you know, for the time being. Um, I mentioned earlier that the bank fees could get a little bit more expensive. Um, maybe that increase isn't big enough to affect unemployment. You know, maybe mm-hmm. that's going to not not hurt us. A, you know, hurt us. But when the cost of doing business for a for a company is higher, you know, are they going to be? less inclined to hire more workers. That's right. absolutely a risk, you know, that, that we could face. And, uh, and so, and our economy's doing, you know, fairly well right now, you know, so, mm-hmm. um, so we'll kind of see what happens with all of this. Um, you know, my bet, and we can grade ourselves uh, next week or I'll grade myself next week. <laughs> my bet is that they hold off. Maybe they'll do an increase in, um, in December. Okay. But, well, that will be interesting. Cause I know a lot yeah. of folks have been speculating quite a while, uh, that by end of 2015, at least mortgage rates were going to be mm-hmm. going up. Yep, a uh, bit. And I do have a lot of buyers who are trying to chase ahead of potential rate increases. But I will say at some point I want to have us just for fun do a comparison of where rates had gone prior to now because uh, I do a lot of upfront education with clients. And one of the interesting components we get into is, uh, especially with uh, the, the group everybody calls the millennials, uh, when I do a first meeting that's typically quite long, we actually do a historical referencing of 
of interest rates from roughly the 80s to today. And when I tell them what some of the rates have been in the past, their eyes get like saucers. <laughs> they oh, have no idea. <laughs> absolutely. My first house was at 15%. Oh, and, what year uh, was that? 1985. Because you're I, old. Uh, I, uh, I was just graduating high school the go. following year. So there you go. <laughs> re- re- yep. Refi down 11 and a half. And I thought that was like really, really cool. Oh, I bet. Well, so, my very first house, when I bought it here in the Ravenna district, of Seattle, uh, my first house was at 9%, and I remember us being ecstatic that it right. was under double digits. And then my next house after that was, I think, at 7 and the next house was also around 7 and I've refinanced recently, so I'll never, never well, refinance that one What do you, what do you figure? Again. Do you know, what's your guess of what the, the historical average mortgage rate is? Oh, my, going back how far? Uh, go to back. To the 40s? Yeah, go back to the 40s. Uh, oh gosh, that's it's, a great around, question. I've never, a, I've never had anyone ask me that. It's I, around seven percent. Seven? Okay, I was going to guess nine, but okay. Yeah, and if if um if if you kind of compare it, let's say that the sky falls and we get into an inflationary thing and rates, you know, rates rocket up. Mm-hmm. You know, we're sitting today, you know, roughly around four percent for a for a thirty year mortgage. Um, let's say that you're the typical home buyer in Seattle. Uh, I don't know if this is typical. Let's say you're you're looking at a four hundred thousand dollar mortgage. Mm-hmm. Well, you've got a payment of about nineteen hundred bucks a month, not counting your taxes and insurance. So let's say rates went from four percent to five percent. All of a sudden, now for that same payment, you can only afford about three hundred and fifty-six thousand dollars. Okay, you, we started at four hundred. We started at four hundred thousand. Okay, so you weren't buying in North Seattle with that price. Point. No, you weren't. So you might might be in Shoreline. Should I should I look at some five hundred thousand numbers? No, I just yeah. Saying, no, 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 no. Yeah, I mean, because so so in other words, today. 400,000, you know, um, if rates go up a percent, you're going to lose $44,000 worth of buying mm-hmm. power. If rates go up 2%, you're going to lose $80,000 in buying power. If That's rates go up 3%, you're going to lose $114,000 in buying power. Right. So, 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 you know, we don't take a, a rate increase lightly by, right. by any stretch, but the, the odds are well, and that also impacts the the price of housing itself too. Because if suddenly you have fewer people who can qualify absolutely for your home, then it will either stabilize or start bringing down our affordability is a huge yeah. a huge thing, and it's also a statistic that the government looks at. We want mm-hmm. to keep about sixty five percent of our population owning homes, That's which is about where we're at right now. It dropped, I, I think, right before the recession, we yep. were hitting 63, around 62. 71 or so. Mm-hmm. That's and right. It's dropped quite a bit. Yeah, that's right. Some of them shouldn't have been owning homes. Yeah, well, and it makes sense because yeah. when we finally went in the recession and we went up to, because I mean, what, historically, uh, the default rate on mortgages is only about, what, 1.4% or yeah. so? Yeah, very And so low. when it suddenly skyrocketed to close to 10, which of course right. followed employment when we, you know, in Washington state, at least we got up to what, about 9.4, 9.6 unemployment rate. Unemployment right. rate. Uh, yeah. You can imagine where that default rate is coming, you know, to, to hitting close to 10%. And, and we weren't even as bad as other areas. Absolutely. So yeah, yeah. it's, it's, it's nice to see those numbers looking a lot better here locally for us. That's yeah. right. So moving on, um, I, I wanted to ask you a few quick questions as well, too. And sure. by the way, you're listening to uh, Business Talk, KKOL 1300. So, Reba, um, we know the market's strong right now, and I think you brought mm-hmm. some statistics in today about that. Well, I do have some information. Um, 
there's a couple of different things that I was looking at before we decided to do this show, and, and one of them had to do with a, a report that was out there. And I should mention, if folks want to reach out to us even outside of the show to start asking for information on coming weeks that we'll be providing, uh, if you want to get access to the resources that we talk about, uh, we do have a, a Facebook page. Team Reba at Remax Metro Realty does have a Facebook page, so you can find us there. Uh, I'm on Twitter uh, with the at Team Reba as my alias there. Uh, I'm also on LinkedIn. If people want to find me, there's a number of social media uh, outlets that you can track me down on and send your questions or requests for some of the content that we're bringing in. Uh, But uh, the Northwest Multiple Listing Service uh, came out with some of their statistics that have information about where we're at uh, with um, the amount of inventory that we currently have. Uh, On average, for the kind of the Puget Sound region, Uh, We're around two to three months of inventory, which still puts us squarely in a seller's marketplace. Tight. Yeah. Very tight. And certain neighborhoods, of course, people will have recognized that because they're in the middle of dealing with multiple offer situations, which has been very painful for a lot of folks. Um, Yeah. But not everybody's getting those, of course. Mm -hmm. But there are some neighborhoods where you see it happening a little bit more. And, uh, What's, what's interesting about balancing out that seller's market is those continued low interest rates keep driving the buyers. Sure. Right? So we have this very unusual marketplace right now in that the buyers aren't slowing down coming into the marketplace. In fact, if anything, they're kind of ramping up because of this idea that interest rates Fear are of the rates up, rising. Right? That's right. Yeah. So us having this low inventory uh, is seen by the real estate community as, as a major problem. But, you know, part of what's driving all that is I'm, I'm looking at this report from the registry, Puget Sound Real Estate, and this writer, Neil Gonzalez, has a bunch of numbers, and he's talking about uh, we had posted in our region 236,400 new wage and salary jobs in the past five years. And wow. that's based on an employment report, uh, a state employment report, Uh, by the Seattle-based Puget Sound Regional Council. And they develop policies and coordinate decisions about growth and transportation planning in King, Pierce, Snohomish, and Kitsap counties. That job growth was the second highest in the last 25 years, surpassed only by the 279,000 gain from 95 to 2000. So that's, that's really significant. And so those jobs are really pushing our marketplace and not even just in the areas that people expect of kind of North Seattle and West Seattle, downtown Bellevue, Redmond, Kirkland, but each county, each county I work in, we're, we're seeing those pressures uh, still happening because there's just not enough inventory and the buyers are scrambling and trying to find uh, new and interesting ways to, to still get into their housing. But um, anyway, I'll be talking about that more as we continue this show, since it's not a one time only today. So uh, if people have more questions, contact us for sure. And we'll give you the number again. You're listening to Business Radio 1300 KKOL. You're listening to Open House with Team Reba. We'll return in a moment. And now more of Open House with Team Reba. Welcome back to Open House with Team Reba. I'm Eric Osnes. I'm Reba Hess. And we're having a conversation on the markets and rates and just about anything else we care to talk about. So, Reba, yes. before the break, you were talking about the local market and mm-hmm. mentioned multiple offers. Talk about that a little bit. 
Yeah, so uh, it's kind of the holy grail of real estate, uh, at least when you're a listing agent or you're the seller, of course. Um, there's kind of a, and this is something I definitely want to try and address on this show and uh, give tips, obviously, on how people can get themselves into the best position of that. But I also want to debunk some things because uh, there are a lot of people out there who think that that's all that's occurring in our marketplace. Mm -hmm, right. And I want to put a little bit of a warning out to some of the folks who might be looking to come on the marketplace that don't go into it with a, what I'm calling right now the seller fallacy of you can put your house on in any condition. Correct. Correct. Because some of those homes where the people are disappointed that they didn't receive multiple offers, they didn't put any effort <laughs> into creating the conditions that that come before that. Uh, so, you know, the, the, the tools and tips that we're providing with our clients is that, you know, to, to absolutely get the most out of your property, you, you do have to put the most into it. And that doesn't mean go and do very expensive remodels. What it means is make sure you're in the most moving condition possible and to have all those things that uh, an inspector might rip apart because there's, there's two main things that can kill a deal, generally speaking. And they're the inspection and financing. Correct. And even in this world of multiple offers and in some marketplaces where people are waiving inspections, frankly, from a liability perspective, don't leave yourself open. Don't have your house in a condition where if after the fact and you've had eight people write offers, six, and, and this actually happened recently with one of my clients, we had eight offers, six of them waived inspection. Mm -hmm. Okay, and just to clarify, when you're talking about waiving inspection, people are, are agreeing to buy this home basically without checking out the condition of the, of the property in, in any way. Yeah, normally an very, inspection very can last up to three hours, and they're checking all the systems, fixtures, and appliances. Uh, to make sure that the property is in good good condition. Sure. And six of these parties um, had waived inspection. Only a couple of them had done a pre-inspection, which is uh, doing that before you put your offer in. And I couldn't believe some of the things I saw released out of these offers, uh, things that are all about giving some sense of uh, security to a buyer. And, and the reason I bring it up as a liability issue to a seller is if you didn't prep your home and you knew there might be some conditions that were questionable and you had a bunch of people write offers and accept your home in that condition, there might be that caveat emptor, let the buyer beware aspect, but that you doesn't stop financing. Well, it may not pass financing, but the other element is you know, lots of studies are done, and the National Association of Realtors has found in their uh, surveys that about 40% of all homes have something break or something fails in the first year and after transfer of ownership. And if it's a fairly significant item, you know, we have a very litigious society. And if someone has now paid $80,000 over your asking price to beat out everyone else, they might be a little upset <laughs> if, <laughs> Just, say, the furnace craps out, you know, two months into the ownership and the water heater failed, too, and the dishwasher leaked all over the floor. They may be looking for some form of repayment. And especially if you've stayed local and you're easy to find, yeah, they may be able to try and take you to court. Do you have any clients of yours that actually 
go against advice on that and and decide to march forward, re, you know, regardless of the consequences? Uh, they either don't stay a client very long. Um, I've only uh, in twelve years, uh, um, I have fired a couple of clients. Um, I think I have been fired once, but that's because the uh, personality conflict between me and the other person was just. We, we couldn't get past it. And it, and it actually was issues related to this person absolutely not following our advice. Uh, I've got a great track record. Uh, you know, almost all the homes we sell sell incredibly fast, and we use a lot of uh, tools to get them there. And if they're not listening to our advice, you know, I, I don't walk in someone else's workplace and start telling them, you know, how to do their job. Sure. Uh, although my husband might might disagree with that. <laughs> But, <laughs> but <laughs> he just texted me. He said, yes. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah no, exactly. I know. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, but we, we, we have a very proven way of, of knowing how we can prep that home to put itself in its best place. And part of our job really is to help a seller that once you craft what your selling strategy and marketing and pricing strategy is part of our job is to really help you maintain the most of that. So when someone's not listening and they're not paying attention, because we don't just come in with like, here's the pretty stuff to do. We also really talk about what's going on in the marketplace, whether it's an inclining or a declining market. Sure. Uh, and and we try and stay ahead of all of those things. So when someone doesn't listen to the advice, we're just probably not the right people to talk to. Sure. Uh, and there's a you know there's lots of real estate agents out there, and there's more than ever right now because of the way the market's going. Well, we're endeavoring, and you know, one of the the largest transactions of a person's life, and it's important to work with Absolutely. someone that you're comfortable with, that you trust, and and that's going to represent you well. Yeah. And uh, there's uh, there's there's good and good and bad out there, and and what works for one person doesn't work for another. So it's I think yeah. that's important. Communication yeah. style can mean everything. Um, whether someone has good analytical skills is it's a it's a key component to the agent and their working relationship with that seller. Because most people, you know, even though the average American, um, the numbers have gone up a little bit because of the recession, but um, the average American is now moving every you know seven to nine years. And you think about that. You're right. It's it's your largest asset. I hate it when people say your largest investment because that is just a big bunch of baloney. Um, if it's your home, it's an asset. And the rules change constantly. So I, as a professional, have to constantly be a student in my industry, always checking what's new, what's changed, what disclosure requirements there are. Uh, you know, folks who, who bought a home 30 years ago I just had someone tell a client, a young client of mine, this the other day, and I went, "How old is that person?" Because they told them that when they sold their home, they were going to have a massive tax liability, hmm. and the house is only going to sell for probably, you know, three hundred fifty thousand dollars. We haven't had that for decades, yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And I asked, I said, "Is the coworker much, much older and hasn't been paying attention to tax law?" Because absolutely, that has changed a long time ago, and it's one of the reasons why there's some folks. Uh, in investment strategies who are willing to move that they'll buy a home, live in it for a period of time, fix it up, sell it, move on to the next home. And that's one type of investment strategy in real estate, right? Sure. Because the capital gains exemption of an owner occupied home is, I mean, it's pretty fantastic. I mean, if people haven't been paying attention to it, $250,000 exemption per person. If you're a married couple, 
That's right. That's, That's right. pretty tremendous, especially right. when a marketplace like here, where we've just gotten close to five hundred thousand as the median sales price, that is very, very significant. Absolutely. Well, it's um, it's good timing. It's good, you know, good to be out there looking right now. Um, hopefully, the Fed will do good, you know, today or yep. tomorrow. Yep. Hey, we've got a radio show coming up at the fair coming oh, up next week. Right. When is that? Yes, yes. We get to go yeehaw, do the Puyallup. <laughs> On September 26th. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll be 5 p.m. 5 p.m. September 26th. I'm not sure if we're in an actual recording booth or we might be down next to the, the bovines or not. Oh, quite. that'll smell fabulous. Well, I, I'm, I'm not going to make It'll any further comments about Kansas. that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm sure, I'm sure Every time I go to the fair, it does. It reminds me of Kansas. Oh, can't help me. But it's that the scones. Me. It's the scones. That's my husband's and all about the scones. I was on the other side of the fair last year, and there's a there's a there's a a, um, a, a, a sky car thing that goes across the whole the other end of the fair. I rode that just to get scones. And I even bribed the the girl at the thing. I gave, I offered her free a free scone if she'd give us a free trip back. And sure enough, we did and gave her a few on the way back. So, yeah, got to get the scones. You were pimping out scones. Heck yeah! Oh yeah, yeah. It was that's, that's a new. It was one. hard to part with those at the very end there though. So I got to. You know you. you can buy those at the store, right? And make them. Nah, it's just not the same thing. <laughs> Well, thank you all for joining us on our inaugural show, Open House with Team Reba and Eric Asas. Yes, we just had... Oh, I'm Reba Hass. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you next week, next Tuesday at 3 o'clock on KKOL. Thank you for listening to Open House with Team Reba. To contact us, visit Team Reba at re slash max metro east side on facebook or email info at teamreba.com the opinions expressed on the preceding program are not necessarily those of the staff management or advertisers of this station join us again next